Welcome to the FinTech and Digital Banking Podcast by BCG Platinian. Your hosts are Annika Melchert and Nora Hocker. Join them as they talk to hand-picked fintech experts about the future of banking. Hello and welcome to another episode of the FinTech and Digital Banking Podcast by BCG Platinian. As always, with myself, Nora, and my co-host Annika. For today, we have invited Henrik Gebbing, the co-CEO of Finoa, a European digital asset custodian and platform provider for institutional investors and corporations. Henrik founded Finoa together with his co-CEO, Christopher May, about three years ago. And by now, they have grown to about 50 employees, have already won several renowned international customers, for example, Early Bird, Coinlist, just to name a few. And they're backed by Europe's leading fintech and blockchain investors. So we're super happy to have you here today, Henrik. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Thanks for the invitation. Hi, Henrik. May I directly ask what inspired you to leave your quite secure job at McKinsey and directly jump into the startup world by founding your own fintech? Yeah, that's a very good question. Actually, at McKinsey itself, I didn't really have a lot of touch points with fintech as an industry. I left McKinsey in 2017 and it wasn't just so much of a consulting use case just yet. Although I was doing a lot of banking industry, traditional banks, private banks, etc. And I started getting very excited about crypto, Bitcoin, etc. as an asset class from a private investor side. And well, looking at it and kind of the potential that it could have on in the financial industry, which I was consulting as a consultant at the same time, kind of really intrigued me. And I sort of had the feeling, and that I share with my now co-founder Christopher, that the incumbents, the traditional banks, they won't really be able to capture this very fast-paced crypto industry, completely new technology stack. And that was then the time when we said, hey, there is a potential, there is a good market momentum right now, it's the right time to start something in that space. And that's what we then did 2017 onwards. From my point of view, the crypto and digital asset ecosystem is not always tangible to the end users. Maybe you could give it a try by telling us how would you explain your current business model to your grandparents? Yeah, that's a very good question. Your cash, basically. You keep it in the bank. You have your bank account and you trust the bank in taking care that those assets are safe. The same is true for institutional investors, corporates. They do the same in the traditional financial system. So when crypto started, the whole idea was obviously to kind of replace traditional banking, replace the incumbents, the middleman. But then after a while, when a lot of investors had problems in safekeeping their assets, started losing their assets because it's fully digital at the end, they figured, hey, there's actually a good reason why specialized financial institutions are safeguarding your assets. So just as I would tell my grandma, hey, don't keep your assets under the pillow, bring them somewhere where someone is specialized in taking care of those. The same I'm telling institutional investors that are interested in Bitcoin and crypto as an asset class, and we show them how we, as a financial institution, have the technology, the tech stack, to actually provide that service and safeguard the assets. Thanks for the explanation. So looking at the digital asset value chain, comparing yourself maybe to brokers like Scalable Capital or Bitpanda, where exactly do you stand in that value chain? Well, you have to look at the market in a differentiated way, right? When you mentioned, for example, scalable capital, they mostly come from traditional assets, right? So they help retail investors as well as institutionals 
to access traditional shares, any other asset class in the traditional financial system. And then you have new players coming in right now, like Bitpanda from Austria, that are purely focusing on crypto as an asset class. At the same time, when you look what Bitpanda is doing, they're very much focusing on the retail space. I mean, that's at the end where crypto came from, right? Crypto didn't come from institutionals or corporates. It started in the retail space. It's about individuals, right? Exactly. It was for the individual to kind of suddenly have a completely decentralized way of investing money, keeping store of value without anyone in the middle, without any financial institution, central bank whatsoever. So when you look at the large players today that we see in the market, like Coinbase as well from the US, they all started in that retail space. And when we looked at the market in 2017, when we had this first kind of idea to do something in the space, there was very little institutional services for anyone that from a corporate background or whatsoever wants to invest in crypto. Obviously, institutional investors have a completely different demand on the set of services, functionalities, etc. And that's when we said, okay, if we also believe that crypto is going mainstream, despite in the retail space, but also capturing the deep pockets of the institutional space, then it needs sophisticated, tailored services for those companies and institutionals when they want to enter the space. And that's what we've been building ever since. It's tailored to institutionals, crypto financial services. And we do not really go into the retail space, but really try to capture as much of the institutional space as possible. How exactly does the institutional space differ from the retail space? So when you look at a retail investor, for example yourself, if you want to invest in Bitcoin, it's completely your own decision to do so. 100%. It's you opening an account. It's you investing into a certain asset class like Bitcoin. It's you then also deciding maybe in two years, hey, now the price appreciated. I made some yield. I want to divest again and maybe start investing in something else. In an institutional context, that's obviously different. You have policies, governance within an organization where several people make decisions together. No one is, let's say, necessarily the single owner of the asset, but the institution is the owner of the asset. And hence, what we replicate is exactly that internal governance of an institution. So, for example, not a single person is able to access the asset or make a decision to transfer the asset somewhere else. But it's only two, three, four, depending on the what we are the counterparty for, that have to make the decision and sign transactions to do so. So at the end, it's all about enforcing policies, enforcing governance that institutional investors and corporates also see in the traditional investment space. So you also have some like approval processes or so in your platform that you could cover? Exactly that. It's based on the threshold of a transaction, for example, which could be a euro threshold. So up to 500,000 euro, one person can maybe make a decision by himself. But then when you go beyond that, it needs the entire board to sign a transaction, for example. So all that we enforce as Finoa focused on this institutional investor class. That sounds cool. So as an institutional investor or corporate, if I am a customer of yours, do you offer me the full value chain, like from investing, trading, custodianship? Do you have that whole thing covered? Or are there any other parties involved in the background? Well, we try to capture as much of the value chain as possible. Obviously, you have to start somewhere, right? And as you also in the intro already said, that we are a custodian. So at the end, what does a custodian do? He safeguards the assets. And custody in the, let's say, very narrow concept is basically you can deposit assets and you can withdraw assets, right? And in the meanwhile, they are secured in, in custody. That's what we started with because... 
when you looked at the market a few years back, you heard about hacks and lost assets in crypto all the time. And this security aspect was one of the major reasons why institutionals wouldn't invest in the crypto space. And I mean, they couldn't just have a, like their local drive somewhere in the basement or so. <laughs> oh, you can't believe what stories we've heard and what institutions have been doing when they anyway invested, even without sufficient service providers. So there was actually a lot of them having a pen drive and having it somewhere in the safe. And that pen drive suddenly was worth millions. And obviously, they didn't feel very safe. First of all, institutional investors most of the time have LPs. So they have third-party money that they invest on behalf of the third party. And when the third party asks, hey, by the way, where's my Bitcoin? Because they read it again in the newspaper that someone lost the private key, so that password to the Bitcoin, very easily speaking. They were obviously not very amused when they said it's on a pen drive in a safe and if someone gets that safe, it's gone, right? And I think that was exactly why we started with custody. What we now did over the last 12, 18 months is expanding the product portfolio to more use cases that are, let's say, being built in the crypto ecosystem. One of those is, for example, staking. You could compare it a little bit to a fixed income product, like an interest product in the traditional space. You get additional yield by participating in a decentralized network. And when we look at the further journey of an institutional investor when he enters crypto, then obviously trading is kind of the next iteration. So you have the assets, you suddenly see them appreciating in price or depreciating in price, And you want to do something with it. You want to sell them. You want to maybe top up your portfolio. You want to rebalance your portfolio between different cryptos. And that's kind of the next iteration of the product that we're currently working on to really capture, let's say, the entire investment journey from investing fiat currencies, so euro, US dollar, keeping them in custody, putting them to productivity, like with staking or even lending, and then also giving the chance to divest and trade the assets when the need is there and the investment theory kind of allows it. So the way you explain it, it sounds like an obvious market opportunity. I'm wondering, are there already other players in the German market or maybe also in European or international markets that you would consider competitors already? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's not a blue ocean where Finoa is like navigating around and there's just no one doing any of that. I mean, from the US which is in crypto especially, but we see it in a lot of other technologies and fintech as well. It's a few years ahead of the market. And I mean, we have all seen this year the IPO of Coinbase, which is kind of this North Star company in the crypto space. And they are obviously also, they build out their team here in Europe as well. They're also looking at the German market very actively. And that is a competitor in that sense. But at the end, just as with traditional finance, it's barely a winner-takes-it-all market in any of those environments, right? So banking, in a sense, is geographically orientated. You know, you, regulation is the best example why that happens, because every regulator has its different rule set that you have to comply with. And what we decided is that we want to build a European champion. So being at the forefront of the crypto industry in Europe and in the institutional space, which is our target market, We very much established ourselves in terms of assets that we have under management exactly in that top category of service providers for crypto. And that being said, we still see a lot of interest from international customers, so from the US, from Asia, even because crypto is not a winner-takes-it-all market as well. Because often when you think about it, you have a portfolio, I don't know, you're an institutional investor, you have 100 million in assets in Bitcoin, and you don't want to 
work with only one counterparty and put all that risk on one counterparty, right? There's a drive towards diversification, so working with two, three providers at a time to have just also like natural diversification between those different providers. And we see that a lot. So a lot of our customers, yes, they also have a Coinbase account and work with Coinbase, but then they move substantial parts of their portfolio to Finoa because we provide the services here out of Germany, out of the Bafin regulated environment that we have here. And they're very happily, I'd say, diversifying their portfolio. That sounds interesting. Maybe you're looking a little bit more into the tech perspective of Finoa. How does an IT architecture look like for a crypto custodian? Well, there's different approaches in general. The market itself in crypto is not as, let's say, standardized just yet as you see it in traditional finance, right? If you want to connect to the European settlement layer for traditional assets, I mean, the standards are all set. That doesn't exist in crypto just yet. There is no neither global standards, no local standards just yet. In a sense, the respective blockchain like Bitcoin kind of brings a global standard because it's one decentralized system that is accessible, completely international, distributed. But then building services on top of that is very non-standardized just yet. So what we did is obviously looking first at security because what is the nucleus kind of in crypto is this so-called private key. I don't want to explain too much what that is, but at the end, it's the password to the asset on-chain, right? So whenever you lose that, that asset is gone and there's no way to recover it. So what the core of a custodian or crypto custodian architecture looks like is that you have to create, protect, and safeguard this private key. And when you look a bit at the history of crypto custodians, when the technology wasn't really available just yet, you saw a technology concept called cold storage. So what that at the end was is that some service providers, they built a human-managed process where they took the private key, cut it in a few pieces, brought it sometimes even to some Swiss vaults or whatsoever. It's just as far away from the internet as possible so that no one could kind of access this, no hackers could access it. But at the same time, that also meant that when someone wanted to access his Bitcoin again because it suddenly appreciated in price and you wanted to sell it, it took 48 hours to get it back online and then be able to move. <laughs> Sounds a bit like having gold reserves somewhere. Exactly. It's not really applicable yeah. to these times. And not digital at all, right? So... When we started, we said there has to be a middle way. There has to be a way that you have security of cold storage, so the private key protected from any third-party access, but at the same time accessible for the user that is actually also the owner of it. You know, And when we just earlier talked a bit about the approval processes and how we allow a company to enforce its internal policy of who is able to access the assets, that's exactly that layer that we build on top, where we, through biometric authentication, make sure that we identify the user, then enforce the policy that the respective user has in place, and then also make the asset that is secured in our core infrastructure accessible for liquidation, for transfer, whatsoever, in a matter of seconds, instead doing that in a human-managed process in a matter of a few days. What platform are you running on? Can I imagine you just on a public cloud infrastructure like Google or AWS? Or you have some servers in the basement? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I have that vault somewhere, exactly, that pen drive. No, we started very much on-premise in distributed data centers, which had several reasons. There's still, for the protection of private keys, there's still hardware used that comes, for example, from the payment card industry. It's so-called hardware security modules, which protect private keys. That's the main 
let's say, objective that those hardware devices have, and you run them in data centers, in a redundant setup, etc. Anyway, obviously what we can move to the cloud, because it's not so, let's say, security critical, and it's just to increase performance whatsoever. We migrated over the time and are still migrating to the cloud, most prominent with AWS, for example, which just provides very stable, also compliant cloud services in the German-European context. And I think exactly that mix of having a bit of on-premise data center architecture and then wherever possible and scalable cloud architecture, that's, I think, the right mix that we want to proceed with. You just mentioned that, of course, having the private key stored somewhere hidden or somewhere locally, that costs very much time. And looking at if you want to do trading, for example, or even if you just want to more dynamically invest, doesn't have to be split-second trading. How do you manage? Like I mentioned there are like two areas in your architecture, like the slower, encrypted, highly secured one, and on the other side, the one towards the market, towards the customer. How do these interact? Well, it's a little bit about the identification of the user, right? In the moment that you are sure, and I'm not going too much into detail how we do that, but in the moment that you are sure that the user intent is reliable and it's valid, it's actually the user that wants to have Finoa execute something with a private key on his behalf. It's a relatively quick interaction and it's not split seconds, it's maybe 30 seconds that it takes for the asset to then actually being moved. And funny enough is that very often the blockchain itself is actually the bottleneck. You know, like for example, for Bitcoin, it takes just an hour for a transaction to really be confirmed, approved, and with that many blocks that you can be sure that it's like irreversible. And that is just something Finoa executes that intent when the user actually confirms his identity within a matter of seconds and minutes. And then the blockchain is the one that just takes quite a while to execute the trade. Obviously, that's there's new blockchains coming up, new crypto protocols coming up, which are much faster than Bitcoin. But still, Bitcoin is kind of this best example that even if your own infrastructure is very responsive and quick, that the on-chain transaction still can take quite a while and you can't be faster than the on-chain transaction anyway. How does actually this, I mean, you can't even call it settlement, but it's some sort of settlement that happens on the blockchain. How does this happen? And looking at that much of a latency from initiating the trade to having it confirmed and on the blockchain, what happens there and how can you ensure that your trade doesn't get lost somehow? There might be a crash within these 30 seconds. How can you make sure that you just still get somewhat the price you originally intended to buy for? Maybe let's separate two terminologies. The one is transfers and the one is trades, right? So a transfer in the blockchain context is really that you send one asset from one wallet to another. Yeah? So from one public address on-chain to another public address on-chain. How do you, let's say, make sure that this transfer actually took place and wasn't rejected by the blockchain? Just there's some, let's say, market consensus about a certain number of blocks that it needs to have confirmed that this transaction took place on-chain. For example, for Bitcoin, it's six. And then for other asset classes, it can be, for example, 18 blocks that it needs, but they're much faster. So then Bitcoin does a block every 10 minutes. In other protocols, it might just be every 30 seconds, for example. And then both counterparties, for example, just agree on a certain number of blocks 
to consider the finality of a certain transfer. For trading, where you obviously really you think about certain prices, which you want to execute very quickly, and trading is that piece that Finoa doesn't offer to the customers just yet because that's just the next kind of product iteration. What a lot of companies do is they don't settle, let's say, trades on-chain. Not only because it's just latent or, for example, it takes a long time, so it takes transaction costs to do so. So, for example, Bitcoin transaction is several euros at times. It, it depends a bit on the network activity. So it just doesn't make sense to execute every small trade, maybe of 50 euros in Bitcoin to execute that on-chain. So what happens is that you see a lot of, let's say, omnibus pooling, sort of, that trades within a certain platform, just executed in an accounting system at the end, very similar to a traditional core banking system at the end. As it's moved from one customer on your platform to the other customer, you account for it, make that visible to the customer, but at the end, the asset always stays in the same place, in the same pooled account, and just doesn't move on-chain. Is it comparable to maybe a stock market or an exchange where the trades take place? And then they are, on the other side, responsible for putting that on the blockchain? Yes. So At the end, you can compare it. It's kind of direct matching, I think, is one terminology that you can use. Or dark pooling, I think, is the right word. That you just directly connect buyer and seller, and you account for it in your ecosystem but the asset doesn't move at all. And that what the exchanges then do is they only move the assets when really someone wants to externally transfer an asset. So you want to move your assets from Finoa to Bitpanda, for example. Only then that asset would be moved on-chain to the new address that the customer created at the new provider that he wants to move the asset to. And the other way around is the same. So at the end, you save the transfer costs on-chain of the respective protocol, you save that time that it takes to settle a trade and you could settle a trade within your same platform in split seconds instead. But in the moment that you have different wallets that are segregated on chain and you have two providers, you need to kind of rely on the confirmation state that on chain is based on a certain number of blocks. And once you can be certain that a certain Bitcoin reached your wallet is only when it is confirmed after that respective number of blocks. And it's six, for example, for Bitcoin. Oh, that's interesting. You just mentioned trading as the next product iteration for Finoa. Is there already another spoiler you can give regarding your roadmap? Well, as I mentioned a little bit in the discussion about the value chain in crypto custody, I mean, when we started, we wanted to help institutionals to safeguard their assets so that they stop losing it or just feel safe in investing in crypto. But now what we really want to build is being this kind of platform gateway for institutionals to access anything that happens in the crypto space. And you see massive trends in DeFi, you see massive trends in decentralized lending, you see this whole staking ecosystem being multi-billion dollar business by now. And all of that, I mean, for anything that you do in this space, you need to have your private key in a safeguarded environment and then use that private key to execute those decentralized products and access those decentralized products. So at the end, what we want to, or what we are kind of doing is at the end we're an asset aggregator. So we aggregate the assets of our customer, safeguard the private keys of our customer, and then allow our users to use that private key for anything that is yield generating, that is sometimes also speculative, of course, but at the end, helping them to access that evolving ecosystem of decentralized financial products out of a secure environment, regulated environment, 
here in Germany. Instead of kind of trying to understand all the different bits and pieces and complexities in the technical landscape, aggregated in one account through Finoa. That's what we're building. So you just mentioned that there is also basically a lot going on right now in the crypto or decentralized finance ecosystem. What would you say is the next big thing in decentralized finance? Well, if you ask 10 people in the crypto space, probably you get 10 answers. I think from a customer perspective, I'm just trying to a little bit replicate what we also hear in terms of demand and questions from our customers, if Finua will support XYZ. I think the fact that the Ethereum blockchain, which is in terms of market capitalization number two after Bitcoin, which brought up the whole smart contract, kind of a lot of the decentralized financial ecosystem is built on this, let's say, base technology of Ethereum, is going to move from a proof-of-work consensus mechanism. Proof-of-work is what makes Bitcoin so energy-consuming, for example. So a lot of computation power needed to create the next block, very easily speaking, is moving from that consensus mechanism to proof-of-stake, which is just a completely different consensus mechanism to reach the same goal, making sure that everyone agrees that this is the latest state and irreversible, immutable state of the blockchain in a decentralized network. And that is anticipated to be a major move for Ethereum as a platform. It's going to unlock a lot of potential also from an investor perspective. So staking on Ethereum it's called ETH 2.0, basically, is going to be a massive business opportunity for us from a provider side, but also for the investor as an investment case. So that is probably one of the biggest things that's going to happen over the next 12, 18 months. But then, I mean, it's always hard to bet, but there's a lot of new ecosystems evolving in superior blockchain technology, better than Bitcoin, better than Ethereum, just in pure, let's say, technical capabilities, the amount of transaction that can throughput in a certain amount of time, etc. And there's a lot of, let's say, betting on different horses happening at the moment from venture capitalists, from even private equity, and anyone that kind of has an investment angle in the crypto space. But who's really the one that is going to make the race? I mean, it's not always the best technology that makes it at the end, right? It's at the end, it's a network effect, it's a community effect, and just the number of use cases that actually make it to market. One question on the proof of stake change that might happen. I can hardly imagine that it is as easy as you just upgrade the Ethereum blockchain or everyone just decides to at the same time install a new version of it. Or how would this happen? I mean, looking at the conventional system, now comparing this to a decentralized network, that sounds a lot more complicated to introduce a new paradigm. I mean, that's one of the major disadvantages as well of a decentralized setup. It kind of has been proven also over the last years that it just takes much longer in a decentralized ecosystem without a central, let's say, decision-making body to actually get to a point to make that decision, right? to get the majority of decentralized votes that a certain upgrade, a certain change in the source code should be conducted. So for example, for this ETH 2.0, it took I think it was anticipated two years ago already. And now we kind of made this step that we are moving towards this next iteration. This whole scalability issue of Bitcoin, I mean, which was at the end, the initial idea in the white paper was to create a decentralized payment system, right? Peer-to-peer. -peer. Now, I think we all agreed that it's not very useful for paying because again, it takes 60 minutes to do a transaction. I mean, we are much faster in the traditional system already, but it's more this kind of digital value, right? Digital gold maybe as a best proxy that it's used for. And Bitcoin hasn't evolved ever since. There's a lot of discussions left and right. 
how to make it maybe more scalable. But the consensus cannot be really found. And when that happens, then sometimes some participants in the market decide, hey, then I'm going to do my own version of Bitcoin. That's how Litecoin started or Bitcoin Cash started. None of them was then as successful as Bitcoin. And that's definitely one of the things where it's going to be very interesting to see how this evolves and what's kind of this new dynamic in those markets to decide on what's actually right to do and what's the getting ready and prepared for future growth. But I think it's also a learning phase. I mean, this is a completely new way of doing and collaborating in the technical environment in a decentralized setup. And could also just be that this is the more sustainable way to do it, right? Discussing it in a much thorough way instead of just one person at one point saying, okay, we do this. You actually discuss every possible outcome and then make the decision all together and also have the buy-in from all sides. But could be in both directions, right? Actually, quite funny to see that you have on one side these, what you would say, the super fast fintechs also in the crypto space or decentralized finance space. And on the other side, the technical limitations of the underlying technology that makes it a bit slower. Indeed. I mean, for us, as we are not just betting on a certain protocol, right? We try to be as much protocol agnostic as we can be because obviously we don't know either if Bitcoin, Ethereum are still going to be as valuable and interesting for our users in five years, right? So we try also to understand, okay, what is where the technology is going? What is it that we as a custodian and then in the future as this multi-product provider for crypto assets, what is it that we should focus on, right? We look at a lot of different protocols and teams that are bringing out new blockchain technology and then take a thorough decision. Is that something that we want to support? Is that something that we see in the next years to have a lot of customer interest? And it's definitely true that if you, for example, build a fintech that was focused on using Bitcoin as kind of a payment method and being super quick in introducing that in all the point of sales across Germany. And now no one is using Bitcoin in that use case, but actually investing, putting it to the side like a bit of digital gold and waiting for it to appreciate. Then you are completely dependent on that blockchain to maybe ever make this upgrade to go more scalable, more faster, or you just have to kind of change and pivot your business model. Henrik, talking already about how Finoa could evolve in the future, what's your vision for the future of general banking, let's say maybe in 10 years from now? Well, I personally still think it's true, which was also kind of this driver to start something in the crypto space myself, together with my co-founder, that the incumbent traditional financial institutions will not play a major role in the crypto financial industry. Why do I think that? If you look at Coinbase, for example, I mentioned that earlier. When they went public, they were immediately among the top five US financial services provider. Yeah, that was extremely quick. They are a native crypto player. Even if one of those big financial institutions, let's be it Bank of America, If they then suddenly start, okay, now we go into crypto, they have such a leeway into kind of bringing their legacy IT to this entire new tech stack. They obviously have to maintain the customer base that they already have. They will have a very hard time providing a twice-wise competitive service to a native player, dragging this entire legacy with them. And then you are a customer, for example, of a native crypto provider, 
you have always access to the next innovation. You have a great native product in the crypto ecosystem. Why would you move to one of the traditional incumbents coming into that industry? And Coinbase is a good example. When the balance sheet for Coinbase is just as big as of that traditional financial institution. So my bet is that in 10 years, the financial industry will be made out of completely new players. And certainly betting that Finua will be one of those, right, in the European context. And that we will probably still see this little bit of a parallel, let's say, setup where you have traditional financial assets. I'm not 100% convinced that all assets will go blockchain and will be tokenized in the near future. 10 years is quite a bit of time, so it could be. But if we still have, let's say, both worlds kind of in parallel or kind of working together, then I definitely that the crypto native players will have, let's say, outperformed traditional banks. So what is your plan to keep Finawa in exactly this game to still be in the space in 10 years? So what are we trying to do? At the end, I think what we kind of want to prove is that with an agile team, with an agile organization that is complying with the regulation and compliance is not an oxymoron of being agile. So we want to kind of combine the two, being regulated, being trustworthy, but still being on the forefront of innovation in the crypto space. And if we are able to kind of do that and continue to gain renowned customers to our customer base, as we have done over the last years, grow substantially in terms of assets that we have under management and that our users let's say, kind of leverage and put to productivity through our products, then we want to just grow with the market at one point just being kind of that go-to place that when you want to enter into crypto in a European context, that there's not a lot of ways around Finoa, kind of being positioned in a way that certain products are just available through Finoa and bring you to our platform. And if we created that with a trust that we are continuously building, because I mean, one of the arguments that very often are brought up, what hinders fintech to scale is often, yeah, because you lack the trust of a balance sheet of a BNP Pariba, right? And that's certainly right. It's hard to start somewhere. But crypto, again, is such a massive chance right now because it's new, you know, that there is no and people rebuy in the crypto space just yet, right? So if we are able to capture the market share, to build the trust with the customers, to provide professional services as a regulated financial institution, then that's exactly our plan to grow with the market, with the customers, with the new customers coming into the space, that they come to Finua and work with us. And that's kind of what we are targeting. We are very excited to hear more about you in the future and see how this turns out. Thank you very much for being our guest today. Thank you very much for the invitation. It's been a pleasure. Back to our listeners. We hope you enjoyed today's episode just as much as we did. And if you want to make sure not to miss the next episode, just hit the follow button. Bye. Bye. been listening to the fintech and digital banking podcast by bcg platinian bcg platinian your experts on it strategy modern technology architecture and state-of-the-art banking the digital future is now for more information check bcgplatinian.com